Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello and welcome back to the New Books and Indian Religions podcast, a podcast channel here on the New Books Network. I'm your host, Dr. Raj Balkaran. More importantly, today I have the pleasure of speaking uh, with Dr. Christopher Jane Miller, um, who is a professor of Jane and Yoga Studies at Arhanta Institute. We'll be talking about a brand new uh, Rutledge publication called Embodying Transnational Yoga, Eating, Singing, and Breathing in Transformation. Christopher, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having me, Raj. It's uh, it's my pleasure. It's a uh, fascinating work. We'll dive into the work shortly. Do you want to say a quick word about our Hunt Institute? I think some listeners might be interested. Yeah, thank you for the opportunity to do that. So Arihanta Institute is a nonprofit educational platform that has fully online offerings in Jain and yoga studies. And we are working towards accreditation of our own to become a fully accredited online university where we offer courses, as I said, in Jain and yoga studies. And we currently offer a master's degree in engaged Jain studies in our collaboration with Claremont School of Theology. So we founded this institute uh, last year, just last year, and had been working on it during the pandemic, actually. My co-founder, Parveen Jain, who's a member of the Jain community, and several other Jain volunteers to create a platform where people could come and have educational experiences online, both accredited for university credit or not, to learn about the Jain tradition and all of its applications in daily life. So we look at philosophy, history, anthropology, as well as applied and kind of engaged approaches to Jain studies through the platform with professors from all over the world. Yeah. Yeah. I was um, part of my research for my master's was really interested in the ethics of violence. I studied the Valmiki Ramayana, but I ended up doing uh, uh, Jain uh, summer school, the sort of research trip that many of us, uh, many of us know about in the field. Uh, I think this was a a thousand years ago. Well, it was, I think 2008 and it was, uh, I learned so much about the Jain tradition, fascinating, rich tradition, of course. Um, now, more to the point of our conversation, this book, Embodying Transnational Yoga, tell us a little bit perhaps about your interest in yoga or or the genesis of the book. Like, How did this come about for you, this project? Yeah, so it's always a different story every time I tell it, but uh, really, I think- Never, never the, step in the same river twice, right? Never step in the same river twice, that's right. <laughs> uh, but basically, it's an attempt by me having had so much experience practicing and working even in the yoga industry and practicing in yoga communities before I came into the kind of critical study of religion and the critical study of yoga and South Asian religions. And the book really brings together these two experiences, I think. On the one hand, all of this really intense yoga practice and then coming into the academy and being confronted by all of these critical methods. And I what, what I'm trying to balance here in this book is the critical approach that we take in the field that's very important without sacrificing the experiences of yoga practitioners worldwide, you could say just very broadly, that people have when they commit themselves to these very rigorous ascetic and yogic disciplines all around the world. And so 
my own experiences, which I've written about elsewhere of, of undertaking these yoga practices are kind of combined with these critical methods of looking at them and self-reflecting on who I am as a practitioner and who these people I'm practicing, practicing with are as practitioners, socially, historically, anthropologically, and, and all these things. So it brings together this sort of appreciative mode for the transformative experiences people have through yoga practice worldwide. Uh, it brings that into dialogue with these critical approaches that we would take in the field of uh, yoga studies, so to speak. Yeah, this is a dovetailing, perhaps attention to some, to others not so much, but the, but this is sort of a, a bifurcation or dovetailing that we touched on, we touched on a number of times uh, repeatedly in the podcast, the, you know, religious studies, the idea of studying religion, studying history of religion, anthropology of religion, you know, sociology, psychology, et cetera, ritual studies, et cetera. And the, 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 the thing that, that I keep returning to is that religion is a lived practice. Um, and so clearly being a good scholar means being a good scholar yet, nevertheless, um, um, and you know, uh, that having a taste will help you be a better nutritionist, although you're just analyzing macronutrients, for example, but having a sort of sense of what's palatable to people from your own experience will only inform your study of nutrition. And so I find it fascinating that that three of the pillars in, in the temple of this, in, in this, of this monograph, the, the, the eating and singing and breathing, two of them are two of the uh, musicality and um, sort of uh, culinary arts are two analogs are returned to to convey to people well yes i mean we can be an historian of music of music or uh, we can study music theory but do we have any rhythm and pitch do we have any sense what the sheet music is used for do we really can we grok that uh, and then maybe it's beyond the pay grade of a, of a, of a prof of world religions and and maybe not and maybe times are changing who knows but i keep returning to that or <laughs> another favorite analogy is sort of eating and nutrition versus the experience of food. So it's interesting that you talk about explicitly um, these phenomena. So tell us a bit about um, how you came about looking at eating, singing, and breathing. Yeah, so these three practices are things that I encountered all the time when I was in the field or even before that, when I was just practicing as a practitioner before I came into real scholarship. And so one of the first things that anyone kind of comes across, usually if they go to a yoga ashram or some kind of intensive training, is the need to somehow modify their diet. And this can happen in manifold ways. It's often promoted as vegetarianism, but not always. It could be veganism. It could be the opposite. The yogis eat all kinds of things, right? Um, but the modification of diet was so central to my own training when I started even before as a scholar. And I noticed that the way when I changed the way that I ate, and I cut in certain things out of my diet, such as meat, for example, or eggs, things that I was used to eating and, and had been accustomed to eating in my sort of Western upbringing, that I started to have big changes in the way that I viewed the world, in the way that I viewed animals, in, in a sort of transformative experience just from changing the way that I ate, right? Um, and so that really showed me that there was something special about yogic diet in specific, in particular, in the particular yogic diets that I was practicing. With regard to music, I first encountered, of course, through kirtan, as we all do, uh, it's all over the place, right? Um, and it's uh, yoga practitioners love kirtan. And I was in Hawaii working at the time, and I met a kirtan community down the road from where I worked, and I got involved with singing with them and really enjoying the meditations that were connected with that. 
And then finally, pranayama, breathing, is another thing that we do frequently in yoga practice. And that's practiced throughout, in addition you know, to the postures and things like that. And you often hear people say in yoga communities that yoga is more than just the postures. And I say that lightly to you, Raj, because I know you just published a wonderful book about the postures. Um, but I wanted to look at something beyond the postures. Oh, that's, that's, author, that's authorized. This is, this is naive, poor sap you know, dumb podcaster Raj. So you know, okay. <laughs> we're good. <laughs> okay. Okay. Yeah. So, but the, the point was that I, I love all the scholarship that's been written in modern yoga studies and it was inspiring me all the way to study, you know, can be contemporary manifestations of yoga, but so much of it was kind of centered around posture and asana. And at the same time, you hear people saying yoga is so much more than just the postures. It's cliche that you often would hear. And I heard it for years. And as I was getting into the study of Indian Ocean studies in my PhD, uh, studying with anthropologists and people who were in food studies, I started to think about these other practices and was encouraged to think about these other practices in yoga communities that take place and say, hey, what happens if we look at how people eat? What happens if we look at how people sing? What happens if we look at how they breathe and where they breathe? What does that tell us about yoga transnationally and globally? And that was really what launched me into these three main categories of wanting to look at things that really have been looked at anthropologically in other ways and, and in some guru studies and things like that. But in the field of modern yoga studies, hadn't really been considered so closely. Was it such that the emphasis on embodiment arose in your mind first and then you found manifestations thereof? Or was it such that, you know, these three these three phenomena struck you and then it occurred to you, oh, this is all about embodiment. Well, this is another thing is you often hear about in yoga circles, so outside of ac academia, that it's all about embodying the practice, right? This is another one of those kind of cliches of uh, you're in a yoga studio or in a yoga community and they say you have to embody the philosophy, you have to embody the practice. And so I'd been hearing this for a very long time, right? And that made sense to me on the one hand, and it meant that I was going to do the practices that were in a particular yogic lineage or, or tradition, and they would have some kind of transformative effect on me. So I was already having those experiences of hearing people say that and, and really committing myself to these embodied practices. When I entered into doing the critical study of religion at the University of California, Davis, and again, when I started reading theory on embodiment, when you start reading Foucault, or you start reading some uh, Bourdieu and things in food studies, and some of these other things like Marcel Moss, for example, uh, you start to realize that embodiment is much broader than just embodying yoga practices, but that the practices that we embody also say a lot about who we are. And that was really the, the crux of, of, of what made me turn towards wanting to look at these practices more critically, if you will. Yeah, this embodiment is a fascinating component. I mean, some would argue uh, indispensable to the practice of yoga and there's an emphasis on embodiment in a variety of places tantra in particular um even looking at the Devi mahatma you see this 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 the, the goddess always comes out of someone's body you know this is a really powerful idea the, the the book that you were mentioning in passing it's my third book but it's my first public book it's called the stories behind the poses and the idea is that look you know warrior great I mean, warrior is what? Virabhadrasana. It's, it has a namesake. It has a mythic, a very specific namesake. Virabhadra is a very specific form of Shiva that has a very specific biography who is born of Shiva's wrath to destroy Daksha's colossal ignorance, the ignorance that gave rise to the self-immolation of Sati, his own daughter. And so, yeah, so when you something about the story, 
might be embodied in the pose, whether right. So the idea is that the mood, the mindset, the mode, the bhavana that we see in the, the story of Virabhadra is um, not incongruent with the bhavana that is to be aspired after in Virabhadrasana, a warrior pose. And the three warriors refer to three points, for example, of the, the journey of, of um, Virabhadra and accomplishing his aim. And so, you know, this is important. I think uh, some people like Tony Robbins, you know, uh, whether you find him insightful or flaky, I've been talking about this for decades. The, the scholars can argue to the boon the face. He's seen it work 10,000 times. And I believe there's actually a Harvard study now that says actually by changing your physical posture, you know, entering Wonder Woman pose or hands on your hips, it literally um uh cues your consciousness to change its change its 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 uh its state so so the emphasis on embodiment is fascinating i think um would you say that this thrust is um trenchant in scholarship new in scholarship what about this do you think is sort of novel uh, versus advancing existing yoga studies scholarship yeah i think with regard to yoga studies specifically what I'm trying to show is that by paying attention to these embodied practices, we can kind of recover some of the agency of these gurus from South Asia who I'm writing about. So Gurani Anjali, uh, Yogananda, and Swami Kuvalayananda, right? Who are trying to translate this embodied logic of transformation through including the poses, but also the way people eat, the way people uh, sing or listen to music and the way that they breathe. I think that, that what I'm attempting to do that I don't see happening in the field is a little bit more of an appreciation for the ways in the the ways that the agency is manifesting from these gurus who are really up against so many challenges. So in India, they're up against colonialism and having to, uh, you know, appear a certain way or conform to a certain uh, colonial mentality, and then in the diaspora being outside of their comfort zone and being sometimes like Yogananda in a very racist environment, for example, or Garani Anjali in a very extremely conservative environment in Long Island, New York. There's only so many things you can say and, and there's only so many things you can teach linguistically through discourse. And I think by paying attention to the way that they understand the embodied practices to kind of fit into the milieu in which they are uh, at the moment shows how they're actually bringing in this transformative system uh, beyond the level of discourse. And I think that that's what is sort of novel for this book in the field of yoga studies. And that is showing these techniques of the body and how these techniques are are, are communicating something that might not necessarily be, be communicated, although it may intersect with some of the discourse within these communities, but the agency is operating uh, at the level of the body itself. The transmission of teachings is happening at the level of the body itself through the embodied practices. Mm. I've, I find it particularly fascinating and compelling that, um, how do I articulate this, that it, uh, if we adopt uh, through the lens of the kosher theory, the idea that we are multiple selves, you know, we're, we're a physical self, we're, you know, a mental self, we're an energetic self, or we're an intellectual self, then we're, you know, we're a bliss self, or maybe a soulful self, we can say. And I find it fascinating that the three most gross selves are actually the, the Anamaya kosher is the food body. That's your eating. <laughs> pranamaya kosha that's your that's your breath or literally prana and then the manamaya kosha singing music musicality joy enjoyment and of course sound and music can obviously penetrate uh, uh various layers of the being but it's i find it utterly fascinating because it you know it's, it's sort of like 
through the lens of kosher theory, right? They're massaging various layers of the, the, the practitioner, the aspirant, the student, what have you. Um, what is, um, how do I, uh, what do you hope folks would most take away from this work? Well, I really wrote this, at least in the beginning, who I really had in mind were my students. And what I wanted them to take away, and when I say students, I mean my graduate students of yoga studies, who had a hard time confronting these kind of material realities that I point out in my book. So as you say, like if we're talking about uh, Anamaya Kosha, for example, I'm picking three practices that are very physical, that really connect us to the material cultures around us. So food, for example, right? These are very material things. And when we study them in other fields outside of yoga studies, they make us pay attention to things we wouldn't normally pay attention to. And so the, the major takeaway, I think, from the book is that I want to invite, in particular, students of yoga studies, but also scholars who are, who are studying it, to look at these more material practices and not be afraid to kind of look into the critical approaches that emerge out of them. And that might challenge some of the ways that they think about their own tradition. And at the same time, even buttress some of the things about their tradition. I want them to be able to study yoga uh, critically and also uh, respectfully and, and be able to put together both without being afraid to do that. Because I often encounter as, you know, Jay-Z Smith warned long ago that when someone comes into the religious studies classroom, there's a tendency when these critical approaches emerge, uh, when we look at these critical histories in religious traditions, uh, to get really upset, to get their worldview sort of rocked. And I think that's part of our job as scholars. And within the yoga community, there's a lot of beliefs about things that aren't necessarily true or don't really jive with, you know, history or, you know, we, we see it all the time. And our job as educators in producing, I think, the scholarship, or at least for me, is to show students that you can look at these things, these, these critical dimensions of your tradition that may call into question some of the things about your tradition or point things uncomfortable about you personally out. But at the same time, you don't have to throw the baby out with the bathwater. There's still so much to hold on to there. Uh, and so I, I realize that's a lot uh, to say what to take away, but I think there's a, that's one of the main points. Yeah. Well, it's this, it's this, it's this dance, and I, th in my particular view, when religion is studied well, or at least you know Hinduism, it's probably speak more sagely about. Uh, the, but it's an, it's an, the emic and the Edic paradigms. They're they're mutually informative, and they're counterparts, and you can't really have one without the other. And it's sort of um, one obviously has to be mindful of history and culture and time and pragmatism and, and mundane causes. But one also has to understand that music is more than history and theory. Music is an experience, as is taste, as is uh, religion, spirituality. Uh, the, the asanas are a gateway drug for so much more in the other tradition because people are having experiences and they may come for relaxation or fitness and many end up um, receiving so much more, right? And so there is much more to yoga than meets the eye, obviously, uh, especially the case for those who practice asanas or various other branches of what we think of as capital Y yoga, um, 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 waking up yoga, I suppose. But, but at the same time, uh, we're not going to say that, you know, we can't take prima facie claims of any tradition that want to say this is, you know, 10,000 years old or what have you, right. for example. Right. And so, yeah, it's important. They're mutually 
it's I think they're mutually informative and that's really important. So you mentioned in passing that you had your grad students in mind. Um, you, you touched on this in passing, but who's the book for? Who do you think would most benefit from looking at the book? So I think scholars of yoga studies uh, in, you know, in both, you know, who have completed their PhD beyond, but also graduate students who want to look for new approaches and new methods to the study of contemporary yoga practices. Uh, I guess, you know, another one of the main takeaways of the book is I want to expand the categories through which we study yoga. And so that's why food, that's why breath, that's why music, which aren't unstudied in yoga studies, but are really understudied, I would say, compared to other things, uh, can show us so much. And so in particular, because this book is so interdisciplinary and I've touched on uh, several different fields, it's being published in the Routledge Transasia and Indian Oceans uh, series, right? And that series in particular has other interdisciplinary approaches. So I think, first of all, people who are interested in Indian Ocean Studies and South Asian Studies are going to be very interested in this book, uh, Beyond Yoga Studies. I think people in food studies are going to be very interested in this book to see yogic food ways. I think people, uh, if you go into chapter two, then people in ethnomusicology and who are interested in this new emerging Indian Ocean ethnomusicology are going to be interested in this book. And finally, in the third chapter where I engage with the field of pollution studies, I think that uh, pollution studies scholars will be interested in the intersections between yoga and air pollution uh, as well. So it was meant to be very interdisciplinary and each chapter tries to take one discipline into conversation with yoga just to see what will happen. An experiment as it were. An experiment to see and, and it, a revealing experiment for me as, as, as I went through and, and realized as I read these other fields that, well, these aren't conversations we're having yet in yoga studies specifically. Um, these aren't conversations we're, we're having even in a lot of the religious studies places, spaces that I'm in. Um, of course, there are food studies at the AAR. There's, um, you know, there's anthropology and these things happening, but I wanted to kind of bring them all into one place in this book and show how they can be productive, particularly with regard to uh, a conversation of trying to understand this this global phenomenon of, uh, of yoga. Speaking of the global phenomenon, this whole transnational element of the title, say a bit about that. What do you mean by that? Yeah, so in the introduction, I do a little bit of discussion around the field of Indian Ocean Studies, which originally was attempting to break the, or to study culture across the Indian Ocean region, let's just say. We had a reading group in my graduate school uh, at UC Davis in reimagining Indian Ocean worlds. And what this did is it really asked us to look beyond nationalist stories with regard to whatever field we were studying. And so this was an interdisciplinary group. I was the only yoga studies person there. There were people from ethnomusicology, food studies, as I said, anthropology, all sorts of other disciplines. And we were really encouraged, of course, to look beyond nationalist discourses and to look at Indian Ocean practices, broadly conceived, religious practices, uh, economic practices, other cultural practices, and see how they connected across the Indian Ocean region. So, you know, connections across the Bay of Bengal, for example, between, you know, Southeast Asia and, uh, and India. And we know that these things exist already in history in, with regard to yoga and, and South Asian religions. And as I started to look and read a little bit more into this literature and some of my colleagues published a book, Reimagining Indian Ocean Worlds with Routledge, I started to get inspired to think about this transnational story of yoga, even beyond the Indian Ocean. It's born, of course, in the Indian Ocean region, but it connects all the way around the globe. 
And so by transnational, what I'm trying to convey here is a story that goes beyond the story of the nation states. There's not a lot of discussion of nationalism in the book, although I mention it from time to time, but trying to see how yoga becomes a practice that becomes transnational, going even beyond the Indian Ocean region and into other oceanic regions, including the Atlantic and the Pacific. So that's kind of what I'm trying to convey to show that even studying within the framework of Indian Ocean studies, which focuses on these interregional approaches, that can be limiting. And we should really look at a global one ocean that's connected by all of these different, uh, you know, cultural and specifically yogic influences that transcend borders, transcend oceanic, um, the differentiation between different oceans even, and yet are connected with very particular local practices. Transplanting the banyan globally, as it were. So, yes. is there a is there a particular um, clearly you're passionate about this topic, but is there a chapter or a facet or um, um, an aspect that most excites you? What did you quite, what did you most enjoy diving into or working out in the book? They were all really fun for me. Um, you know, I wrote the last chapter in 2022 before a conference and all of this is, is, a, is, a, is emerging from my dissertation where I have a lot of the data, but not enough of the analytical framework there. Cause I was in such a rush to finish it because I had a job and I wanted to get it done. But when I revisited, uh, particularly chapter three, uh, this one was difficult for me to write, but it was also exciting for me to write as I got into the field of pollution studies and looking at air specifically. So in that chapter, what I do is I start by, by revisiting an old problem that Joseph Alter pointed out about pranayama. What does it mean to practice pranayama when you're inhaling uh, for therapeutic purposes, especially you're inhaling this, this inner city air, this really heavily polluted inner city air. And it's a problem that's always perplexed me as I practiced yoga in Delhi, for example, or in Mumbai. Uh, and in this case, I was at Kaivalya Dham in, in, uh, just outside of Mumbai. And I'm hearing other students, particularly Western students, saying, how can people practice pranayama here? I open up with this scene where I'm walking with another student, Western student, who's saying, how can people practice pranayama here? The air is so filthy, you know, this question of, of what that means. And as I drove into pollution studies, it really forced me to confront what it means, the privilege of having clean air to breathe in the first place. And of these Western students who are coming to India breathing this air and making these kind of remarks when there are other people who live there and cannot escape this kind of, uh, this this really awful context in terms of the air pollution. And what that got me to do was to start to look into pollution studies specifically and look at the work of Timothy Choi, for example, and Z, who really call our attention ethnographically to air, to look at air as a substance that needs to be considered in our ethnographic work and what it means for a human body to be in suspended in air in particular places. And as I started to read into that more and I started to read Mbembe a little bit uh, about necropolitics, I started to realize that a lot of the approaches that we had been taking in modern yoga studies towards biopolitics and the notion that yoga is being used to support neoliberal systems, it just wasn't analytically enough. Um, and that the pollution and the fact that uh, India itself is considered in some ways geographically from a ge geographer standpoint, somewhat of a sacrifice zone with regard to pollution because of all the uneven development that takes place there and lack of regulation, that it, it, it became very disturbing to me to, to see that on the one hand, they have these people suffering terribly who cannot escape from this pollution. And on the other hand, have to um, 
you know, have to go on breathing anyways, every other day, every day. And I can just, I can just take off and leave. And so that, you know, that, that chapter excited me in the sense that it, it required me to face a lot of the, the privilege that I myself even had brought to the practice of yoga in the United States and in Hawaii, where I'm having a great time, all these transformative experiences and seeing that, you know, that that's coming from, you know, they're transformative experiences, but, but I'm very lucky to be able to even have them. Um, and, and, I felt a deep regret, I guess you could say, for the pollution, the polluted state that occurs in the global south, even more so after reading through the field of pollution studies. Would you say that uh, writing the book, either the process of writing it or the findings of the book, uh, would you say that your practice or relationship to yoga has been changed? Absolutely. I So I still practice yoga and I still practice asanas um, almost daily, at least a bit, right? Um, but what this ended up feeling like, like to me, this book, as I as I completed this book, was I had completed some kind of yoga practice of myself on myself through the, the research itself. And the reason I say that is that there were so many beliefs I had about the world and about yoga and about its history. You know, this is going on. This has gone going on over fifteen years, of course, since I started practicing yoga. But those beliefs and those. Uh, those things I thought were true about the world and about yoga were untangled through the critical scholarship I was reading. And so in a way, writing this book for me was part of the practice. And that's what I like to emphasize to my students is that this critical scholarship, we don't have to see it as something separate from our practice, but can actually make our practice much stronger in a sense. Yeah. Without quite, I mean, to my mind, without question, critical engagement of tradition it can only inform one about tradition <laughs> and um it's interesting in that um you know i'm a practitioner of various stripes and uh, i guess indic mostly <laughs> in many ways i'm spiritual not religious but also many of my many of my initiations and practices come from indic origin so it's it's complicated let's just say it's complicated my status <laughs> my status it's complicated um um, um, but you know, I don't know. I haven't. Uh, I study epics. I study Sanskrit narrative, and I, I love Sanskrit narrative. That question. I love story. Uh, um, I I can only imagine how either um, uh, challenging or, and or fulfilling it would be to study an aspect of of practice in which one is engaged. Yeah. And so that, you know, I can only imagine what that would be like. And maybe maybe at some point I'll turn my attention to some such um, aspect of Hindu studies. But for now, Sanskrit narrative, uh, there's lots of work to do in the Puranas yet. <laughs> um, there's there's some things, right? Yeah, I, I agree. When I was getting into this, before I went into graduate school, I, I'm a surfer. You can see my surfboards in the background because we're on Zoom, right? Um uh, yeah, the, the, the 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 podcast will be will be audio only, but 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 all of you will be deprived of uh, of, of Christopher Miller's uh, lovely blue business casual summary shirt and uh, you know <laughs> the background. But anyhow, go on. surfboards. Yeah, but the reason surfboards. I'm saying that the reason I'm saying that is I it, I I I've been surfing for over twenty years now, and the experience you have when surfing. I started surfing before I started practicing yoga can be somewhat similar to the experience you can have when you're practicing certain forms of yoga, for example. And that experience, some would call it flow, call it whatever you want. 
just like you said with music or with taste, there's certain experiences you can have with certain things that you do that you could describe as mystical or religious or spiritual. And I remember, or, or, ever, or just even in a pedestrian sense, experiential, like vanilla, experiential. Like literally vanilla. You have no idea what vanilla is until you taste it. There's nothing yeah. mystical about it. Well, maybe for some, but it's just experiencing vanilla, right? All the way from one to the other. Yeah, exactly. I mean, it, it could be on all these levels. It could be so profound, or it can just be like tasting vanilla ice cream. But I remember with surfing, you know, I had this full range of experiences, and so did my friends. And one of them handed me a book, Ron Taylor's book, A Dark Green Religion. I don't know if you've read that book, but uh, he, he he has a chapter in there about surfing and spirituality. And I remember when I read it, this was my first kind of in, indoctrination into like, oh, maybe this there's something more to this. Um, I remember saying like, I remember Bron Taylor in this book saying, you can be critical uh, and, and realize that surfing as an industry is environmentally destructive part of capitalism. <laughs> Um, but that doesn't change the fact that it's still an extremely transformative practice into which you can have all these various quote unquote spiritual experiences that he lays out in there. Right. Um, and so, uh, as you say that I never went into surf studies and there is such a thing. <laughs> there are people doing these sort of political studies of surfing. And I've read some of the abstracts of the books. And I think to myself, if I read that book, I don't want it to ruin the experience of surfing for me. I don't think it would now, but um, it's the same thing, right? When you have these practices, it's difficult to interrogate them from these, these, these other analytical categories of politics and uh, looking at the way that colonialism intersects with it and all these things. So it's, I think it's the same. It's a similar process that I went through with yoga. Well, it's, it's a difference of whether you're swimming or you're the lifeguard you're a swim instructor it's just you know whether or not you're engaged in a practice whether or not you're thinking about it yeah yep it hits you on different levels yeah yeah absolutely absolutely um is there anything else about the book i know we've kept it high level purposefully um is there anything else about the book that you'd like to touch on talk about there was one part go on yeah no go ahead after you <laughs> so one of the things I think I, I, I didn't mention in, in enough deal, detail is the kind of opening epigraph to the book that inspired the approach that I took, which is this quote from Techniques of the Body, this, this old article from 1935 from Marsama. Uh, and, and he says this, and I'm not going to read the whole thing, but he says, I've studied the Sanskrit texts of yoga. Uh, and then he goes on to say that even in remote periods, uh, this this psycho excuse me this socio psycho biological study should be made uh, that looks at the techniques of the body basically that bring people to a, a, a sense of communication with God, and I went oh Marcel Moss he got it nineteen thirty five like he knew that that in these Sanskrit texts it was laying out a cultural logic that could lead one to some kind of you know whatever you want to call it an experience so to speak and call it trans mundane experience whatever you want to call it right uh, you know uh, but the rest of the article is about like how swimming is is like we were just saying like how swimming is taught in a particular way in France you know how and it's different from in Polynesia but then you get to this 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 quote just hit me like um this is a socio psychobiological study that we're undertaking here that and that was what really got me going um and and I knew from previous experience before going into academia that yoga had the capacity to allow human beings to uh, have some kind of experience uh, or experiences, we might say, these different traditions of yoga. Uh, and at the same time, these experiences are not separate from the context in which they're taking place. And to me, that made the process of researching yoga and embodied practices of eating, singing, and breathing joyful in a way. Uh, I really enjoy it now. So. Mm, lovely 
is this work that you hope to continue in some way? What are you working yes. or otherwise put? What are you working on now or next? <laughs> so I'm actually working on another chapter right now. This is a fun one. Uh, it's about Garani Anjali's music because she started her ashram during the counterculture. And I wrote a little bit about it in my dissertation, but I didn't have time to get around to it. But the way that Garani Anjali's the band or who, you know, the, 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 the ensemble is putting together these countercultural instruments and making yogic music at the same time is a really interesting cultural entanglement. And I'm having fun because every morning when I go for a walk, I listen to, uh, you know, countercultural music uh, and, I'm, and I'm listening to the Doors again. I'm listening to the Beatles. I'm listening to all these groups that, uh, and I'm hearing a little bit of the ashram in there, but I'm also realizing that, that Anjali was really harnessing the uh, the potential of this music and and putting it towards yogic ends. So I'm working on that as a continuation of this project for for an edited volume by Brita Heimark, who's who's doing one on yoga and sacred sound traditions. And then I also just signed a book contract for a, an edited volume called Engaged Jainism, because Jain studies is my other field of studies that looks at the way that Jains engage with the world, much in the spirit uh, of of this this particular um, book that that we've reviewed here today. So those are things I've got going now. And I also teach in our master's degree program at Audrey Hunter Institute. And I de I'm developing two new courses through which students can take this kind of critical and appreciative approach to modern yoga and Jain studies. Fascinating. I will definitely include links to uh, the program and the book, obviously, and whatever else you'd like. That uh, yoga and sacred sound volume sounds absolutely fascinating. I mean, it all sounds rich. I mean, sound is, is crucial to my own practice. I mean, I've engaged in decades of mantra but initiated into literally hundreds of mantras and you know i have an online school it's sort of a wisdom school it's um the indian wisdom school it's called i think um and it's it's fascinating because it attracts super smart and super spiritual people and few people are either and, and especially a few people are both and and th these are the people who want their nerdy references they listen to their podcast often and they also want the initiations and it, it's it's so fascinating but um but uh, I've got to have uh, whatever else you produce will certainly cover on the podcast or that you're part of. So um, is there anything else you wanted to touch on or anything that you want to ask me? I, th I think I covered it all, but, but I, I wanted to know your, what, how do you feel about the book? What, did, what, were, your, what were your takeaways? I mean, you're oh. the first person who's interviewed me about it. So like, what, what did you take away from this well, book? Um, I love all of the books that I cover on the podcast. Of course <laughs> <you do. laughs> <laughs> my 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 dharma on the podcast is to showcase the features of the book um but but of course since you've asked since i've opened the door for whatever reason for you to ask me a question you've asked yeah it resonated insofar as um well first of all yoga studies is timely and important for obvious reasons yoga is a massive global phenomenon and it's it's, it's only going to go one way <laughs> in the foreseeable future and um there's always going to be a minority of people who do yoga, i.e. asana, who are um, interested in the more that is yoga, but there's so many people doing yoga now that small percentage is a lot of people. So there are tons of people in the world. I do nothing to target yoga people, yoga teachers, but they show up at the Indian Wisdom School because they want to learn the, the history and the spirituality and the philosophy. I've got YTT's yoga teacher training is knocking on my door saying, hey, can you do a Zoom unit on mythology or philosophy for us? I've done probably a half a dozen of them in the last year without any canvassing. So there's a deep interest in yoga. There's a deep interest in 
yoga studies and what we can know about yoga. And there's also deep interest in ways in which yoga can be used uh, to ameliorate suffering, to, to, to facilitate in, in inner experiences. And so I think yoga studies is timely one. Two, without question, you know, um, now that Raj is being asked, Raj the person and, and Raj the scholar, embodiment's crucial. I mean, there's an article waiting to be written about the Devi Mahatmya's emphasis on embodiment. I think there might have been a tiny vignette in the first book, The Goddess and the King in Indian Myth, but embodiment is absolutely crucial for, for practice. And we see this in the text insofar as a no epic or Puranic vignette is told ex nihilo by an anonymous narrator. It's always so-and-so asked, so-and-so said. Even in the textual world, you see this evidence of embodied experience. So the idea of embodiment really resonates. Um, and two of those three uh, facets are, are running analogies for the study of religion. And that is uh, music history versus musicality and 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 uh, uh, being a nutritionist versus, versus being a connoisseur or just being a glutton or what have you. So no, it, it certainly resonates. Um, I don't know enough about yoga studies to comment, but my sense is that the book very much could take yoga studies or an aspect of yoga studies in a different direction. And another piece that really excites me because I enjoy accessibility and collaboration and conversation is the extent to which um, you know, this podcast will be cross-posted at New Books Network, I'm sure. I don't know all the channels. I know the handful that relate to what I do, like South Asian studies for sure. If there is a music studies channel, this podcast will be cross-posted there. If there is a food studies channel, this podcast will be cross-posted there. So I, I say that by way of uh, evidencing the interdisciplinarity and the conversations that occur in my niche, it's exciting that... Um, I can interlace the study of Sanskrit narrative with Umberto Eco, reader response theory, or ring composition, literary studies, broadly defined. And so without question, you know, when I nerd out more about literary studies, the way Sanskrit narrative works has a lot to say about how we interpret text. It's a two-way street. It's not just using Western theories to interpret Sanskrit texts, but the way Sanskrit texts work have a lot to teach about how we theorize the reactive interpreting text. But that's my teeny, teeny, uh, interdisciplinary piece um, that, that we can compare to the ways in which you engage musicology and food studies, et cetera. So definitely cool book. Um, don't know enough about yogic studies to really evaluate it on a professional level, but I quite enjoyed it. And also it's written obviously in an accessible style. Um, and beyond that, the, the, the passion comes through. You're interested in this, right? I had a reviewer once review a book that I wrote for Rutledge's Hindu Studies uh, series, you know, uh, the, uh, the academic, uh, the academic press, um, uh, and the reviewer said something along the lines of, you know, I think there were overall uh, appraising of what was written, but one of the comments were, uh, he appears to be writing from the perspective of a bhakta, a devotee, but it doesn't seem to engage any of the arguments. And I thought to myself, do you think either Gavin Flood or any of the reviewers of this book would have had anything like would have actually been interested in a confessional stance of any kind? But the individual was picking up the passion, the interest in these larger than life narratives and thinking, oh, must be a devotee. No, uh, perhaps that has something to do with the the name and the skin color and, and assumptions. But but right. you can pick up the passion. You can pick up the the interest which makes it an enjoyable read. So now I've said far too much, but that's okay. You asked the question curious. and here we are. Yeah, I was, thank you. I, I was just curious. Uh, I always want to hear what people are thinking as they're reading through it. So it helps me think through it as well. Excellent. So, well, thank you very much for being on the podcast today.
Thank you, Raj. For those listening, we have, of course, been speaking with Christopher Jane Miller on a fascinating new uh, publication uh, embodying transnational yoga, eating, singing, and breathing in transformation. Until next time, uh, keep keep reading, keep listening, uh, and keep eating, singing, and breathing. Take care. <laughs>